Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 28th. The war in the Middle East is now 145 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research here at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I'm tired, and it's not just because I wake up early to prepare for the FDD Morning Brief. I'm tired because the headlines out there are increasingly ridiculous, they're tedious, and they don't square with reality. We do what we can here to address some of those errant narratives, and we do it three times a week. So keep tuning in, and we'll keep giving you the stuff you probably don't see on TV. My FTD colleague, Brad Bowman, is going to join us shortly. He is the senior director of our Center on Military and Political Power, or CMPP. He's a former helicopter pilot who served his country in Afghanistan and on Capitol Hill. We'll talk to him about how he sees the wider war unfolding in the Middle East and beyond. But first, let's talk about this new Palestinian government taking shape. Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Shtaya tendered his resignation the other day. The purported reasons are twofold. One is to stand up a government to oversee Gaza reconstruction. The other is to enact reforms to satisfy the criteria for what could be an independent Palestinian state. A few problems here. For one, Mahmoud Abbas, the corrupt and infirm autocrat who is now 18 years into his four-year term, will somehow keep his job as president. Plus, the guy he tapped to take over is 69-year-old Mohammed Mustafa. Mustafa is a former economy minister and former deputy prime minister of the Palestinian Authority. In short, he's a longtime Abbas crony, just like the last guy. Oh, and Mustafa is currently head of the Palestine Investment Fund. That's a sovereign wealth fund initially created out of the billions of dollars the PLO collected from across the Arab world to fund attacks against Israel. Today, the PIF is a slush fund for Mahmoud Abbas to shore up power in the, in the West Bank, where corruption and cronyism runs rampant. So much for reform. With billions in aid expected to pour in, do we really want the same corrupt people who destroyed the Palestinian self-governance project to take a hack at Gaza? Oh, and guess what? Russia is convening a summit tomorrow between Hamas and the PLO to forge a unity government, kleptocrats and jihadists working together. What could possibly go wrong? This can't be the best we've got. The Palestinians are educated people. Sure, they've got a lot of problems, but human resources ain't one of them. We've got to do better. And don't tell me this is not about letting the perfect get in the way of the good. This is pure, unadulterated laziness. If you ask me, it might be the soft bigotry of low expectations. Now for your headlines. Headline one, Bloomberg reports that Iran's stockpile of highly enriched uranium has dropped for the first time since last year. Here's the skinny. Tehran downblended nearly 32 kilograms of its 60% highly enriched uranium for a net decrease of 5%. Some might say this is good news given that highly enriched uranium is what the Iranians need if they decide to go for a nuke. But it's not really good news because, as my colleague Andrea Stricker notes, the regime simply downblended the 60% stock to 20%, which requires only a little bit more effort to get to weapons grade. Meanwhile, that 20% stock grew by 145 kilos and Iran installed about 1,000 new advanced centrifuges. So Iran actually added to its breakout capability. Sorry, folks, we are not out of the woods here, not by a long shot. 
Any effort to downplay the threat of a nuclear Iran should be seen for what it is, highly enriched BS. Headline two, Sky News Arabia reports that Iran has promised to resupply the Houthis with new missiles and drones after strikes by the U.S. and U.K. depleted their arsenal. Once again, the Iranian regime is the sugar daddy of the Houthis. Weapons, cash, training, military guidance, you name it. I'll also assume that the submarines the Houthis are now touting are also part of the aid package from Tehran. So now what? If the Houthis have shut down maritime traffic in the Red Sea, and if the Houthis have destroyed the communications cables that run under the ocean, we need to stop only pointing a finger at the Houthis. It's time to hold the regime in Iran to account. I know, I say it often, but for good reason. We are never getting out of this mess until Iran begins to fear the repercussions of its terror support. Will that happen during an election year? Probably not, but it should. And headline three, Israel held municipal elections yesterday, even as war raged in the North and the South. I know these are not the elections that Israel needs. The big post 10-7 shakeup is inevitable, but be careful what you wish for. It was not that long ago when Israel went through multiple rounds of inconclusive national elections. I prefer not to see that again. That said, I have faith that whenever the next elections are held, we'll see Israelis speak clearly about who they want to lead their country. But let's also remember, elections in the Middle East are the exception, not the rule. Israel continues to stand alone as a democracy in the Middle East. Even with the low turnout yesterday, I find it remarkable that they pulled off a vote more than four months into a grueling war. It's now my pleasure to introduce Brad Bowman. Brad served as a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in the Army. He studied at West Point. He later went on to teach there. He came to us from Capitol Hill, where he advised several senators on national security. Today, he serves as Senior Director for FTD's Center on Military and Political Power. We're thrilled to have him here today on the FTD Morning Brief. Welcome, Brad. Uh, thanks, John, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, good to have you here. So first, just for those not familiar with CMPP, tell us just a little bit about the center you run for us here at FTD. No, thanks for the question. I really enjoy talking about our center. Um, you know, uh, as you know, but some of the viewers may not, FTD organizes itself internally uh, with uh, programs and centers. And so we have three centers on American power. One is the Center on Economic and Financial Power. Another is the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation. And the third, which I lead on a day-to-day -day basis, is CNPP, the Center on Military and Political Power. We launched our center in, in 2019. Uh, the chair is uh, Lieutenant General Retired H.R. McMaster, a name many will know. Uh, sec former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta is on our board of advisors, as is uh, former Senator Kelly Ayotte. Uh, Ambassador Eric Edelman and, and, and others. Our formal mission is, you know, we seek to promote understanding of defense strategies, policies, and capabilities necessary to defend and defeat threats to freedom, security, prosperity of Americans and allies by, by doing what? By providing rigorous, timely, and relevant research analysis. That's kind of our, our formal mission. On a day-to-day -day basis where the rubber meets the road, what I really try to do is I try to identify decisions that are going to be made in the next one to 18 months, what I call the short to medium term, where the, the, the results of that decision will have grand strategic or strategic words I use very deliberately, impacts for the U.S. and our allies, and hopefully do damage to our adversaries. And when we identify those pending or possible decisions, we go to work with really rigorous research. We publish often short pieces, ones that are short enough for decision makers actually to read. And that's where a lot of research institutes stop. But you know, based, John, on the culture that you and Cliff and Mark Dubowitz have established, 
We then follow that up with actively briefing members of Congress and their staffs and decision makers and others talking about what we think good policy looks like. And so, um, you know, this really is more than just words. I mean, just a few examples. I mean, uh, following Putin's massive uh, reinvasion of, U of Ukraine in 2022, me and my colleague Ryan Brooks, we identified 6,300 non-NATO Russian and Soviet origin weapon systems around the world that could be sent to Ukraine. And a lot of those, after we published it, were subsequently sent. And, you know, we came up with the idea for the U.S.-Israel Operations Technology Working Group, which is making Israel and the United States more secure as we speak right now. So that's that's really kind of who we are, what we're doing, and, and what motivates us. Definitely part of that FDD DNA, turning ideas into action, and we appreciate all that you do. Let me actually ask you about a couple of products that you guys recently put out. You put out a multimedia FTD visual with Ryan Bropes documenting Iran's maritime aggression last year. And then more recently, you published an FTD visual with Mike Dom documenting attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan, which we've talked about quite a bit on the FTD Morning Brief here. Can you talk to us about those two projects, why you did them, what they reveal? Sure. No, thank you. You know, sometimes here in uh, think tank land, I found that you, you can say things dozens of times or you can write op-eds that at least me and my mom think are Shakespearean in, in their prose, uh, but you aren't able to move the policy dial. And so working with our incredibly talented colleagues, Aaron Blumenthal, Pavak Patel, and Daniel Ackerman, we put out recently two FDD visuals. Uh, the first one that you mentioned was an Iranian maritime aggression visual that we published last year. Here's what we did. We, we looked from January of 2021 to July of 2023, and we documented every incident we could find involving the Islamic Republic of Iran engaging in maritime harassment, attacks, or ship seizures, cataloging them and documenting them using videos, pictures, and key details. You know, while, John, while we love this work uh, that we do, we didn't do it just for the fun of it. The, the big idea here was to um, kind of uh, uncloak uh, uh, what Iran is doing and, and underscore two key policy points. One is that the Islamic Republic of Iran is indeed the leading threat to freedom of navigation in the Middle East and really is, you know, the, the term that we overuse, you know, the arsonist posing as the firefighter. It's kind of an obvious statement now, but back last year, a lot of people didn't fully appreciate that. And we wanted to document it and just uncloak it and show it to be what it was. And the other interesting thing, John, is when we went through these 26 incidents and viewers, I'll post it on my X today so viewers can see it if they want to. When you go through them, something emerges. And it, it, when, again, when you say it, it's kind of like, oh, that's obvious, but it has real policy implications. When the U.S. Navy showed up, the Iranians backed down. And so like there was one incident, two incidents actually on July 5th, 2023, where they are literally trying to seize a commercial vessel. Here comes the U.S. Navy. Guess what happens? The Iranian backs down. So that's, oh, that's a nice anecdote. What does that mean? Well, it demonstrates the value of forward posture and it demonstrates what happens when America is confident and shows strength, uh, kind of the, the inverse of what we'll, we'll be talking about here in a moment. So that's the first one. And, and I really give uh, Ryan Bropes a great credit for that. The second one is related to um, uh, uh, attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria and Jordan. You know, I, uh, John, I, you know, I, I was in the Army. I taught cadets, many of them deployed to war. Some of them didn't come home. I have many friends serving in the military. And I have a, maybe an old fashioned idea that if you're gonna send our sons, daughters, husbands, wives, neighbors to war, you better give them what they need to do the mission and they return home safely to their families, period. Both the means to do it and the political permission to protect themselves. But after Iran has been attacking US forces for years, they wanna evict US forces so they can more effectively 
uh, export terrorism, control their neighbors and, and surround and exterminate the state of Israel. But we need to have U.S. service members in Iraq, Syria and Jordan to keep the ISIS caliphate defeated. But again, if you're going to put them there in harm's way, give them the means to protect themselves. And after October 7th, the Biden administration kept saying, we don't want a regional war. We don't want a regional war. Well, you know, anyone who's been on a playground, right, if you get punched in the face 100 times and you're saying, I don't want to fight, I don't want to fight, what are you going to get? More punches. And that's exactly what we document in our tracker. Again, I'll post that on X. Um, you know, from October 17th to January 27th, John, there are more than 160 attacks on, Iraq, in, in, on U.S. force in Iraq and Syria. And then, of course, we had that horrible incident on January 28th, where we had three U.S. service members killed and more than 40 injured. And in response to that, the Biden administration finally mustered a little bit stronger of an approach on February 2nd, attacking seven facilities, 85 targets. And then a few days later, we killed the uh, the leader of Qaitab Hezbollah. And what's happened since then, John? We've had no attacks on Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. Now, don't you know? Don't get too comfortable, viewers, because our research tells us that there re aren't we're seeing indications in. Iraq and especially Syria, that the bad guys are rearming and preparing. So those attacks are coming. But if you go to this graphic, you'll literally see us graphically displaying the location and the date of these attacks and showing the huge, huge gap between more than 164 attacks and only 11 or 12 responses. That's a formula for more of the same. Yeah. And I think that visual really does help put it all into perspective. <clears throat> Um, let me ask you just about what's going on in Gaza, right? I mean, we're watching the IDF. It's been a tough slog. They've been at it now for four and a half months. I would argue they've done pretty well on the battlefield, but it's obviously not easy. Um, what are your concerns? What are you thinking about as you watch this war unfold? Thanks, John. I, I think, um, uh, you know, as you know better than me and a lot of your viewers know quite well, October 7th uh, was, uh, was a horrible combination, combination of Pearl Harbor and 9-11 for Israelis shattering assumptions and, and really demonstrating the need for a different approach toward Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, you know, the IDF confronted, I would say, one of the most complicated and difficult battlefields in memory. I would say arguably much more difficult than what the U.S. military confronted in Afghanistan, Iraq or Syria. Um, Gaza, of course, is one of the most urban, uh, dense urban environments. Tens of thousands of uh, ideologically uh, motivated extreme terrorists embedded directly below civilians and hundreds of miles of deeply embedded tunnels stocked with weapons, ammunition, and supplies. These male, mostly young male terrorists hiding in these tunnels below women and children, hoping that those women and children die in sufficient numbers quickly enough to put pressure on Israel to stop their military operations. By the way, where do you, what kind of men are these that would do things like that? And so this is the situation in which the IDF entered. I, many experts predicted much higher casualties. You know, every IDF casualty, just like every American uh, military casualty is a genuine tragedy, particularly for the families. But the casualties have been much lower than many expected and progress has been much quicker. It's been quite extraordinary. Um, and so I, I give the IDF credit for that. Um, they've taken ex extraordinary measures to protect civilians, frankly, going above and beyond what the U.S. military normally does as a as John Spencer said last week to you, I think kind of setting a precedent that even the United States may not always live up to in terms of informing our adversaries of what we're going to do next and notification and these sorts of things. And so I'd say it's gone very well up to this point, but I am concerned, John, that there are difficult days ahead. 
Um, I, we can't give Hamas a safe haven in Rafah, so we got to get those 1.4 million Palestinians to a place where they get food, medicine, health care, and separate them from the terrorists that need to be killed so that Hamas doesn't have a safe haven in Rafah. There's huge pressure on Israel to stop permanently. I think that would be a huge mistake. And I am concerned that the successful counterterrorism operations we've seen so far eventually will morph into a counterinsurgency, which will be resource intensive and casualty intensive. If Israel stays, they're looking at IEDs, ambushes, and increased casualties and accusations of being an occupying force. If they leave, then Hamas, you know, every young man will go find a green bandana, grab an AK-47 and go right back at it. So um, I, I do have some concerns going forward and all that will be happening if Israel gets bogged down in Gaza with uh, Hezbollah looming in the north. So those are some of the things I'm watching going forward, John. Agreed. And let me ask you just briefly, Hezbollah, where do you think the focus should be in the coming weeks and months in terms of security in the north for the Israelis? John, you, you've talked about it. Uh, you know, Hezbollah, to, to say it simply, is the varsity to Hamas's junior varsity. And we saw how deadly the junior varsity can be, you know, 200,000 missile rockets and mortars. Um, the status quo is unacceptable with tens of thousands of Israelis, Israelis vacating Israel's north. Hezbollah has to be pushed back. I'm not holding my breath that they're going to do that voluntarily. Um, Israel does not. And some of my Israeli friends get upset when I say this, but I don't think we do any favors by not speaking the truth because Israel and America's enemies know the truth. Israel does not have the air and missile defense capacity that it needs uh, to deal with a large scale war with Hezbollah. And so um, I, I think in this moment, we really need to be focusing on getting Israel the precision guided munitions it needs, the small diameter bombs, the joint direct attack munitions, integrating the SPICE precision guided munition on the F-35I, dramatically increasing Tamir production, standing up a Tamir interceptor production capacity in the United States, a, a redundant capacity than what they have in Israel, so that in that major war when Hezbollah, I'm reluctant to say when you have industrial defense industrial plants being blown up in Israel and you have reservists being called to the front lines, America come along, can come alongside Israel and provide some of those interceptors and even produce some of the other components of our dome potentially in addition to the supply network. So those are some of the things I'm focusing on. There's an impulse in Israel to want to do everything independently because they see the political pressure in Washington. They understandably don't like it. But I think spending all that money on trying to make Israel and a defense industrial superpower, which it will never become, would be a mistake. I said, and think instead they should pursue a hybrid approach where they get the munitions now that they need, build a little in domestic industrial capacity for the, the systems they think they'll be deprived of, and, and, and dramatically increase the number of PGMs, Iron Dome capacity, and, and interceptors. Last question for you real quick. Uh, you published a piece in Newsweek last week with U.S. former U.S. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, of course, a past guest here on the FTD Morning Brief. It's a great piece. Um, can you discuss what you're watching among America's adversaries? I mean, we talk about China, Russia, Iran all the time here. What what, what are you tracking here? Yeah, no, it's it, it's it's really important for, I think, Americans and our allies to understand that our adversaries are working more closely together than they've ever been. You know, we, we've seen Russia and China more aligned than they've been since the 1950s. Our intelligence community said that a while ago. We've seen uh, Russia supporting uh uh, what Beijing says about Taiwan and Beijing supporting Russia's ridiculous narratives regarding Ukraine and NATO. We've seen, uh, and, 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 and I'll just focus on Iran. We've seen Iran provide Russia with thousands of these Shahed drones to Russia for killing Ukrainians. And in turn, uh, Iran is acquiring advanced conventional weapons uh, from Russia, including the Su-35 fighters. And I am very concerned that those 
advance Russian capabilities will increase Iran's confidence that it could sprint to a nuclear weapons capability and repel attacks designed to stop it. And simultaneously, you know, we saw that 25-year strategic partnership agreement between uh, Tehran and Beijing in 2021. That resulted in lots of cash flowing into Iran, uh, and thereby uh, immunizing Iran in, against Western sanctions pressure, making it even less likely that Iran will ever negotiate in good faith. And so that, that combination of increased mil Iranian military capability and, and, and reduced leverage of Western sanctions is a very dangerous combination, especially if you consider some of the things you were saying earlier about Iran's nuclear activities. Sobering stuff. Thank you, Brad Bowman, for taking some time out to join the FTD Morning Brief today. Thank you, John. Okay, here's what FTD has on tap for you today. My colleagues John Hardy and Mark Montgomery put out a new piece in Defense News highlighting key weapons that America can send now to Ukraine without compromising U.S. military readiness. The Biden administration says it's out of money for Ukraine because of congressional dysfunction. Fair enough. But John and Mark point to existing authorities to deliver $4 billion worth of materiel to Ukraine that U.S. warfighters actually don't need right now. Director of FTD's China program, Craig Singleton, has a new piece in Foreign Affairs analyzing Taiwan's recent election and the subsequent political fallout. He notes that Taiwan's fractured electoral outcome foreshadows political divisions that China can and will exploit. In short, Beijing's pre-election meddling may have actually succeeded in advancing its strategy of sowing societal discord in Taiwan. And finally, my colleagues Sinan Gidi and Melissa Sachs just published a profile on a guy named Mohammed Mushanish. A shadowy Hamas operative and organizer, Mushanish has been based in Turkey for the last decade. Sinan and Melissa call on the U.S. government to take a good hard look at him. He certainly looks like a good candidate for sanctions. That's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Tune in Friday for another installment of the FDD Morning Brief. I'll be handing the wheel over to Rich Goldberg, and he'll be speaking with Sarit Zahavi from the Israeli NGO Alma, which tracks the Hezbollah threat. It'll be a good one. Thanks for joining today. See you again soon. As always, I'm Jonathan Chanzer, signing off for FDD. Thank you.